discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. So it turns out that the pathway to civility just might be as simple as making perceptions match reality. As explained by Daniel Turner for Philanthropy Roundtable, new research suggests Americans may be way less polarized than they think. A recent presentation by Samantha Moore Berg, director of the University of Pennsylvania's Peace and Conflict Neuroscience Lab, suggests the pathway to civility is obtaining a better understanding of those one disagrees with. Moore Berg's study addresses, quote, meta-perception as an avenue for division, but also for intergroup reconciliation, end quote. She defines meta-perceptions as, quote, what you think another group thinks about you. She conducted two studies examining what Republicans and Democrats think of each other versus what they think members of the other party think of them. Moore-Berg determined there was a huge mismatch between actual perceptions and what they thought the other group thought about them. While both Republicans and Democrats rated members of their own party as more civilized and evolved than members of the other party by a margin of 22 points, this was far from the 55 to 59 point difference they assumed. Members of both parties thought the other side was twice as set against them as they actually were. The result has been that American citizens are avoiding members of the other party and doing everything possible to keep the other party from being able to win or govern. Two additional studies by Moorberg determined that pleasant contact with members of an opposing group correlated with improved humanization of the other group. These studies suggest one reason America is so polarized is that disagreeing citizens do not have enough pleasant interactions with one another. Philanthropyroundtable.org And you know what else these studies suggest, folks? Is that reality is what we make it. I should correct myself. Normally, reality is what we make it. Of course, as you all know, we live in a quote-unquote new normal, and with that new normal comes a new reality. And I'm afraid that reality is one not of our making, but of theirs. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio, I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. 
Howdy, folks. Now, personally, I don't think it would be a proper episode of The Daily Ruckus on the topic of reality without a headline like this. According to CNBC, Reality Winner, a former Air Force linguist who pleaded guilty in 2018 to leaking an intelligence report about Russian interference in the 2016 election, has been released from prison. Her attorney, Allison Grinter Allen wrote in a post on Twitter, quote, I am thrilled to announce that Reality Winner has been released from prison. She is still in custody in the residential re-entry process, but we are relieved and hopeful, end quote. A Bureau of Prisons website says that Winner is currently located at a re-entry facility in San Antonio. Her release date from the facility is listed as November 23, 2021. Winner, now 29, was 25 at the time that she printed out a classified intelligence report at the National Security Agency facility in Georgia, where she worked, and provided it to journalists at the investigative news outlet The Intercept. A story based on Winner's leak was published on June 5, 2017, with the headline, quote, Top Secret NSA Report Details Russian Hacking Effort Days Before 2016 Election, end quote. The article, written by journalists Matthew Cole, Richard Esposito, Sam Biddle, and Ryan Grimm, said, quote, Russian military intelligence executed a cyber attack on at least one U.S. voting software supplier and sent spear phishing emails to more than 100 local election officials just days before last November's presidential election, according to a highly classified intelligence report obtained by The Intercept. Winner was sentenced to five years and three months in August 2018. According to Allen, Winner's early release was not the product of a, quote, pardon or compassionate release process, but rather the time earned from exemplary behavior while incarcerated, end quote. Allen added that Winner remains barred from making public statements or appearances. Winner and her family, Allen said, quote, have asked for privacy during the transition process, as as they work to heal the trauma of incarceration and build back the years lost, end quote. Winner's case was an early example of the tough approach that President Donald Trump's administration took toward those accused of leaking confidential government information. Prosecutors said at the time that Winner's sentence would mark the longest sentence served by a federal defendant for leaking to the media. The case also reflected poorly on the source protection protection methods used by The Intercept. In 2017, Editor-in-Chief Betsy Reed issued a statement acknowledging that, quote, at several points in the editorial process, our practices fell short of the standards to which we hold ourselves for minimizing the risks of source exposure when handling anonymously provided materials. Winner was arrested on June 3, 2017, two days before The Intercept published its article based on the document she provided. Investigators said they tracked Winner down after determining that whoever had leaked the classified document had printed it out. Winner was one of just half a dozen people who had printed the document, and she had also used her work computer to email someone at The Intercept. 
cnbc.com. Sorry about that, folks. I really couldn't resist the timing on that one, considering today's subject. And I promise, I really didn't make you tune in today to talk about reality the person. No, we're going to talk about reality the thing, or whatever it is. And we're going to get into a little bit about augmented reality, and virtual reality, and even manufactured reality. But before we do, we're going to take a look at real reality, whatever exactly that is. I mean, what is reality anyways? I would venture to guess that the jury is still out on that one. However, we can always count on science to come up with all sorts of interesting ideas about anything and everything including reality. Peter Evans, writing for The Conversation, says, Imagine you sit down and pick up your favorite book. You look at the image on the front cover, run your fingers across the smooth book sleeve, and smell that familiar book smell as you flick through the pages. To you, the book is made up of a range of sensory appearances, but you also expect the book has its own independent existence behind those appearances. So when you put the book down on the coffee table and walk into the kitchen or leave your house to go to work. You expect the book still looks, feels, and smells just as it did when you were holding it. Expecting objects to have their own independent existence independent of us and any other objects, is actually a deep-seated assumption we make about the world. This assumption has its origin in the scientific revolution of the 17th century, and is part of what we call the mechanistic worldview. According to this view, the world is like a giant clockwork machine whose parts are governed by set laws of motion. This view of the world is responsible for much of our scientific advancement since the 17th century. But as Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli argues in his new book Helgoland, quantum theory, the physical theory that describes the universe at the smallest scales, almost certainly shows this worldview to be false. Instead, Rovelli argues we should adopt a quote-unquote relational worldview. During the scientific revolution, the English physics pioneer Isaac Newton and his German counterpart Gottfried Leibniz disagreed on the nature of space and time. Newton claimed space and time acted like a quote-unquote container for the contents of the universe. That is, if we could remove the contents of the universe, all the planets, stars, and galaxies, we would be left with empty space and time. Time. This is the quote-unquote absolute view of space and time. Leibniz, on the other hand, claimed that space and time were nothing more than the sum total of distances and durations between all the objects and events of the world. If we removed the contents of the universe, we would remove space and time also. This is the quote-unquote relational view of space and time. They are only the spatial and temporal relations between objects and events. The relational view of space and time was a key inspiration for Einstein when he developed general relativity. Rovelli makes use of this idea to understand quantum mechanics. He claims the objects of quantum theory, such as a photon, electron, or other fundamental particle, are nothing more than the properties they exhibit when interacting with, in relation to, other objects. These properties of a quantum object are determined through experiment and include 
include things like the object's position, momentum, and energy. Together, they make up an object's state. According to Rovelli's relational interpretation, these properties are all there is to the object. There is no underlying individual substance that quote-unquote has the properties. Consider the well-known quantum puzzle of Schrodinger's cat. We put a cat in a box with some lethal agent, like a vial of poison gas, triggered by a quantum process, like the decay of a radioactive atom, and we close the lid. The quantum process is a chance event. There is no way to predict it, but we can describe it in a way that tells us the different chances of the atom decaying or not in some period of time, because the decay will trigger the opening of the vial of poison gas and hence the death of the cat. The cat's life or death is also a purely chance event. According to orthodox quantum theory, the cat is neither dead nor alive until we open the box and observe the system. A puzzle remains concerning what it would be like for the cat, exactly, to be neither dead nor alive. But according to the relational interpretation, the state of any system is always in relation to some other system, so the quantum process in the box might have an indefinite outcome in relation to us, but have a definite outcome for the cat. So it is perfectly reasonable for the cat to be neither dead nor alive for us, and at the same time to be definitely dead or alive itself. One fact of the matter is real for us, and one fact of the matter is real for the cat. When we open the box, the state of the cat becomes definite for us, but the cat was never in an indefinite state for itself. In the relational interpretation, there is no global, quote-unquote, God's eye view of reality. Rovelli argues that since our world is ultimately quantum, we should heed these lessons. In particular, objects such as your favorite book may only have their properties in relation to other objects including you. Thankfully, that also includes all other objects, such as your coffee table. So when you do go to work, your favorite book continues to appear as it does when you are holding it. Even so, this is a dramatic rethinking of the nature of reality. On this view, the world is an intricate web of interrelations, such that objects no longer have their own individual existence independent from other objects, like an endless game of quantum mirrors. Moreover, there may well be no independent quote-unquote metaphysical substance constituting our reality that underlies this web. As Rovelli puts it, quote, we are nothing but Images of images. Reality, including ourselves, is nothing but a thin and fragile veil, beyond which there is nothing. End quote. Theconversation.com That was pretty deep. Just keep all of that in mind as we move forward through the next few stories. The Motley Fool reports, According to The Verge, nearly 20% of Facebook's employees are working exclusively on virtual reality, VR, and augmented reality, AR. Plus, the company has been acquiring small VR studios for years, most recently Big Box VR and Unit 2 games, for undisclosed sums. These 
continuous investments in talent and studio acquisitions may seem steep for a business segment that accounts for less than 3% of Facebook's top line. But Mark Zuckerberg's ambitious vision for VR is powering a shopping spree that likely won't stop anytime soon. Is Facebook ahead of the game, or will its Oculus VR venture fail to move the needle? Zuckerberg has been talking up VR more than usual lately, partly thanks to accelerated adoption of the Oculus Quest 2 VR headset, according to Facebook, but the company does not explicitly report figures for sold VR hardware. The CEO's major talking point in Facebook's latest earnings report was VR and AR, predicting, quote, augmented and virtual reality to unlock a massive amount of value, both in people's lives and the economy overall, end quote. His excitement about the technology is not unwarranted. Fortune Business Insights forecasts that the global market for VR gaming will reach $45.2 billion by 2027, up from $5.1 billion in 2019. This translates to a compounded annual growth rate, CAGR, of 31.8%, compared to a CAGR of only 5.3% for the overall gaming console market over the same forecast period. Facebook's strategy for VR gaming domination starts with laying a solid foundation of technology and developer talent. In classic Facebook fashion, its primary tactic has been acquiring existing VR hardware and software companies. Since acquiring Oculus VR for $2 billion in 2014, the company has made significant progress in improving its VR hardware to better suit customers' needs. The current Oculus Quest 2 is a standalone headset, i.e. no wires to trip on or tangle up while playing, and requires no external device such as a console or PC. Conversely, Sony's wired PlayStation VR headset requires a PlayStation console. The Quest 2's wireless, low hardware conveniences, combined with its low price point relative to any other major headset on the market, give Facebook a competitive edge when it comes to hardware. But even the best VR headset is useless without great games, making Facebook's VR studio acquisitions crucial to building up its VR ecosystem. By Acquiring small yet high-performing studios, Facebook is securing revenue from already popular VR games on Oculus and retaining top software developers to create exclusive content within the Oculus platform. If you know Facebook's business model, you're probably wondering when ads come into play. The company has announced that it will begin testing ads in select games on the Oculus platform, but it's still up in the air what exactly the ad experience will look Look like once testing begins, and how VR gamers will react. If the company can manage to integrate ads without breaking the immersive gaming experience, it will help developers earn more revenue, thus attracting more developers to the Oculus platform, and could even make games more realistic. For example, real ads appearing on in-game TV screens and billboards would not break players' immersion in their gaming world, while still driving revenue 
for developers and Facebook. Beyond attracting developers for top-tier content, Facebook has a unique edge in attracting consumers as well, its massive social networking user base. No other VR headset can offer such easy accessibility, i.e. low price point with no required console purchase, and such a high potential for network effects. For example, it would be much easier for a friend to influence you to purchase a $300 all-in-one VR headset than a PlayStation console and headset, which would total more than twice the cost of the Quest 2. Don't get me wrong, Sony is a leading competitor in the VR gaming space and has shipped the most VR hardware units to date, but the company's network effects are arguably limited to existing PlayStation owners, about 15.7 million monthly active users between the PS4 and the PS5. Facebook's 2.8 billion monthly active users have much more potential to add value to the Oculus platform by sheer volume of players, especially when it comes to popular social VR games like Population One, Kraya, and Beat Saber multiplayer. Social gaming experiences are inherently more valuable with more players. While some VR multiplayer games are cross-platform, i.e. an Oculus player can game with a PlayStation VR player, Facebook will likely tighten up its exclusive content offerings to attract and retain players, as long as the company rolls out ad content in a way that feels relatively organic to Oculus players, Facebook is set up for success in rapidly gaining market share in VR gaming. Fool.com Huh, cool. And apparently, folks, virtual reality can do a heck of a lot more than simply make video games more fun and make Zuckerberg more money. It can actually help boost brain rhythms that are linked to learning and memory. As reported by News Medical, a new discovery in rats shows that the brain responds differently in immersive virtual reality environments versus the real world. The finding could help scientists understand how the brain brings together sensory information from different sources to create a cohesive picture of the world around us. It could also pave the way for quote-unquote virtual reality therapy for learning and memory-related disorders ranging including ADHD, autism, Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, and depression. Mayank Mehta, PhD, is the head of W.M. Keck Center for Neurophysics and a professor in the departments of physics, neurology, and electrical and computer engineering at UCLA. His laboratory studies a brain region called the hippocampus, which is a primary driver of learning and memory including spatial navigation. To understand its role in learning and memory, the hippocampus has been extensively studied in rats as they perform spatial navigation tasks. When rats walk around, neurons in this part of the brain synchronize their electrical activity at a rate of 8 pulses per second, or 8 hertz. This is a type of brainwave known as the theta rhythm, and it was discovered more than six decades ago. Disruptions to the theta rhythm also impair the rat's learning and memory, including the ability to learn and remember a route through a maze. Conversely, a stronger theta rhythm seems to improve the brain's ability to learn and retain sensory information. Therefore, researchers have speculated that boosting theta waves could improve or restore learning and memory functions. But until now, nobody has been able to strengthen these brain waves. Damage to neurons in the hippocampus 
can interfere with people's perception of space. As Dr. Mehta says, quote, why Alzheimer's disease patients tend to get lost, end quote. He says he suspected that the theta rhythm might play a role in this perception. To test that hypothesis, Dr. Mehta and his colleagues invented an immersive virtual reality environment for the rats that was far more immersive than commercially available VR for humans. The VR allows the rats to see their own limbs and shadows, and eliminates certain unsettling sensations, such as the delays between head movement and scene changes, that can make people dizzy. Quote, Our VR is so compelling, Dr. Mehta says, that the rats love to jump in and happily play games. End quote. To measure the rat's brain rhythms, the researchers placed tiny electrodes thinner than a human hair into the brain among the neurons. Quote, it turns out that amazing things can happen when the rat is in virtual reality, says Dr. Meta. He goes to the virtual fountain and drinks water, takes a nap there, looks around, and explores the space as if it's real. End quote. Remarkably, Dr. Meta says, the theta rhythm becomes considerably stronger when the rats run in the virtual space in comparison to their natural environment. He says, quote, we were blown away when we saw this huge effect of VR experience on theta rhythm enhancement. End quote. This discovery suggests that the unique rhythm is an indicator of how the brain discerns whether an experience is real or simulated. For instance, as you walk toward a doorway, the input from your eyes will show the doorway getting larger. Dr. Meta says, quote, How do I know I took a step and it's not the wall coming at me? End quote. Answer. The brain uses other information, such as the shift of balance from one foot to the other, the acceleration of your head through space, the relative changes in the positions of other stationary objects around you, and even the feeling of air moving against your face to decide that you are moving, not the wall. On the other hand, a person quote-unquote moving through a virtual reality world would experience a very different set of stimuli. Dr. Meta says, quote, Our brain is constantly doing this. It's checking all kinds of things, end quote. The different theta rhythms, he says, may represent different ways the brain regions communicate with each other in the process of gathering all this information. When they looked closer, Dr. Meta's team also discovered something else surprising. Neurons consist of a compact cell body and long tendrils, called dendrites, that snake out and form connections with other neurons. When the researchers measured activity in the cell body of a rat brain experiencing virtual reality, they found a different electrical rhythm compared with the rhythm in the dendrites. Quote, that was really mind-blowing, Dr. Meta says. Two different parts of the neuron are going in their own rhythm, end quote. The researchers dubbed this never-before-seen rhythm ETA, E-T-A. It turned out this rhythm was not limited to the virtual reality environment. With extremely precise electrode placement, the researchers were then able to detect the new rhythm in rats walking around a real environment. Being in VR, however, strengthened the ADA rhythm, something no other study in the past 60 years has been able to do so strongly, either using pharmacological tools or otherwise, according to Dr. Meta. Previous studies have shown that the precise frequency of the rhythm makes a big difference to neuroplasticity, he says, just as the precise pitch of a musical instrument is critical for creating the right melody. This opens up an unprecedented opportunity to design VR therapy that can retune and boost brain rhythms and as a way to treat learning and memory disorders. Quote, this is a new technology that has tremendous potential, 
he says, we have entered a new territory, end quote. News-medical.net. Hey, speaking of reality and new territory, let's wrap this one up with a banger. This one comes from CJ Hopkins of Consent Factory, Inc. Headline, Manufacturing New Normal Reality. The ultimate goal of every totalitarian system is to establish complete control over society and every individual within it in order to achieve ideological uniformity and eliminate any and all deviation from it. This goal can never be achieved, of course, but it is the raison d'etre of all totalitarian systems, regardless of what forms they take and ideologies they espouse. You can dress totalitarianism up in Hugo Boss-designed Nazi uniforms, Mao suits, or medical-looking face masks, its core desire remains the same. To remake the world in its paranoid image. To replace reality with its own, quote-unquote, reality. We are right in the middle of this process currently, which is why everything feels so batshit crazy. The global capitalist ruling classes are implementing a new official ideology. In other words, a new reality. That's what an official ideology is. It's more than just a set of beliefs. Anyone can have any beliefs they want. Your personal beliefs do not constitute reality. In order to make your beliefs reality, you need to have the power to impose them on society. You need the power of the police, the military, the media, scientific experts, academia, the culture industry, the entire ideology manufacturing machine. There is nothing subtle about this process. Decommissioning one reality and replacing it with another is a brutal business. Societies grow accustomed to their realities. We do not surrender them willingly or easily. Normally, what's required to get us to do so is a crisis a war, a state of emergency, or, you know, a deadly global pandemic. During the changeover from the old reality to the new reality, the society is torn apart. The old reality is being disassembled, and the new one has not yet taken its place. It feels like madness, and in a way, it is. For a time, the society is split in two, as the two realities battle it out for dominance. Reality being what it is, i.e. monolithic, this is a fight to the death. In the end, only one reality can prevail. This is the crucial period for the totalitarian movement. It needs to negate the old reality in order to implement the new one, and it cannot do that with reason and facts. So it has to do it with fear and brute force. It needs to terrorize the majority of society into a state of mindless mass hysteria that can be churned against those resisting the new reality. It is not a matter of persuading or convincing people to accept the new reality. It's more like how you drive a herd of cattle. You scare them enough to get them moving, then you steer them wherever you want them to go. The cattle do not know or understand where they are going. They are simply reacting to a physical stimulus. Facts and reason have nothing to do with it. And this is what has been so incredibly frustrating for those of us opposing the rollout of the quote-unquote new normal, whether debunking the official COVID-19 narrative or Russiagate or the storming of the U.S. Capitol or any other element of the new official ideology. And yes, it is all one ideology, not communism or fascism or any other nostalgia, but the ideology of the system that actually rules us supranational global capitalism. We're living in the first 
truly global hegemonic ideological system in human history. We have been for the last 30 years. If you are touchy about the term global capitalism, go ahead and call it globalism, or crony capitalism, or corporatism, or whatever other name you need to. Whatever you call it, it became the unrivaled globally hegemonic ideological system when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s. Yes, there are pockets of internal resistance, but it has no external adversaries, so its progression toward a more openly totalitarian structure is logical and entirely predictable. Anyway, what has been so incredibly frustrating is that many of us have been operating under the illusion that we are engaged in a rational argument over facts. Example, the facts of Russiagate, 9-11, Saddam's WMDs, Duma, the January 6th quote-unquote insurrection, the official COVID narrative, etc. This is not at all what is happening. Facts mean absolutely nothing to the adherence of totalitarian systems. You can show the new normals, the facts, all you like. You can show them the fake photos of people dead in the streets in China in March of 2020. You can show them the fake projected death rates. You can explain how the fake PCR tests work, how healthy people were deemed medical quote-unquote cases. You can show them all the studies on the ineffectiveness of masks. You can explain the fake quote-unquote hospitalization and death figures, send them articles about the unused quote-unquote emergency hospitals, the unremarkable age and population-adjusted death rates, cite the survival rates for people under 70, the dangers and pointlessness of vaccinating children. None of this will make the slightest difference. Or, if you've bought the COVID-19 narrative, but haven't completely abandoned your critical faculties, you can do what Glenn Greenwald has been doing recently. You can demonstrate how the corporate media have intentionally lost again and again to whip up mass hysteria over quote-unquote domestic terrorism. You can show people videos of the quote-unquote violent domestic terrorists calmly walking into the Capitol building in single file, like a high school tour group having been let in by members of Capitol security. You can debunk the infamous quote-unquote fire extinguisher murder of Brian Sicknick, that never really happened, you can point out that the belief that a few hundred unarmed people running around in the Capitol qualifies as a quote-unquote insurrection or an attempted coup or domestic terrorism is delusional to the point of being literally insane. This will also not make the slightest difference. I could go on, and I'm sure I will as the quote-unquote new normal ideology becomes our new reality over the course of the next several years. My point at the moment is this isn't an argument. The global capitalist ruling classes, government leaders, the corporate media, and the new normal masses they have instrumentalized are not debating with us. They know the facts. They know the facts contradict their narratives. They do not care. They do not have to, because this isn't about facts. It's about power. I'm not saying that facts don't matter. Of course they matter. They matter to us. I'm saying let's recognize what this is. It isn't a debate or a search for the truth. The new normals are disassembling one reality and replacing it with a new reality. Yes, I know that reality exists in some fundamental ontological sense, but that isn't the reality I'm talking about here. The pressure to conform to the new reality is already intense, and it's going to get worse as vaccination passes, public mask wearing, periodic lockdowns, etc. become normalized. Those who don't conform will be systematically demonized, socially and or professionally ostracized, 
segregated, and otherwise punished. Our opinions will be censored. We will be cancelled, deplatformed, demonetized, and otherwise silenced. Our views will be labeled quote-unquote potentially harmful. We will be accused of spreading misinformation, of being far-right extremists, racists, anti-Semites, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, anti-global capitalist violent domestic terrorists, or whatever they believe will damage us the most. This will happen in both the public and personal spheres, not just governments, the media, and corporations, but your colleagues, friends, and family will do this. Strangers in shops and restaurants will do this. Most of them will not do it consciously. They will do it because your nonconformity represents an existential threat to them a negation of their new reality, and a reminder of the reality they surrendered in order to remain a quote-unquote normal person and avoid the punishments described above. This is nothing new, of course. It is how reality is manufactured, not only in totalitarian systems, but in every organized social system. Those in power instrumentalize the masses to enforce conformity with their official ideology. Totalitarianism is just its most extreme and most dangerously paranoid and fanatical form. So sure, keep posting and sharing the facts, assuming you can get them past the censors. But let's not kid ourselves about what we're up against. We're not going to wake the new normals up with facts. If we could, we would have done so already. This is not a civilized debate about facts. This is a fight. Act accordingly. Consentfactory.org Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this little reality check, as it were. Or was that a check on reality? Regardless, I sure hope you learned something. And I know this was a little bit of a longer episode. So, in quick summary, don't forget. Reality, recently released from prison, could just be a game of quantum mirrors, or it could be a virtual tool to help Facebook dominate a large share of the market using technology that can help boost your brain rhythms and theta and eta waves, and or could be used to help manufacture a new reality? Hold on now, that's not quite right. Aw man, now I gotta go back and start from the beginning again. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.